standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9 as we continue on in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 3, but I want to read from verse 13 of the prior chapter so that you grasp the connection between the ideas here. So, 1 Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 13, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Let's ask God to help us understand. I grant this, O Lord, to trust in you with all of our hearts. For as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever and ever. Amen? You may be seated. Now we come to chapter 9 here this morning, verse 1. We'll notice that there is a very abrupt transition. Now that's in part why I read verse 13 of chapter 8 this morning and then spilled on over into chapter 9 is because I wanted to catch the sense that there is a transition that is going on here as we move now into chapter 9. In chapter 8, the apostle had been admonishing the Corinthians not to use their liberty in Christ in an abusive fashion. And it was abusive because the way they were using it uh, was leading some of the strong people in the congregation to lead some of the weak people in the congregation uh, to defile their conscience and to stumble in their faith. And Paul said that this is unloving. This is a violation of how we're to use our Christian liberty. But you'll see the transition and you'll catch the note of it is you uh, just take note of the questions. It's not just the substance that changes now in chapter 9. It's the very form in which the Apostle uh, speaks to these Corinthians. No longer do we have admonitions. Now we have uh, rhetorical questions. And we see them just broken off in a series here. In verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not Apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Are not you my work in the Lord? We have four rhetorical questions here. Rapid fire succession. If you read your way through the rest of the chapter, you'll also notice that Paul continues in this line of address. We have 16 rhetorical questions in 27 verses. So there is a bit of a change here. And I bring this up uh, simply because if, if you have a study Bible, you've probably seen this somewhere in your notes, that there is a debate uh, about what's going on here in this text. Uh, some people speculate that this is just a parenthesis. Uh, that all of chapter 9 is Paul just taking a big breath and talking about something else for a minute before he comes back to the issue of meat offered to idols. Uh, there are others who would argue that chapter 9 somehow slipped into the letter of the Corinthians and it doesn't even belong to this letter at all. That somehow uh, some scribe somewhere back in the ancient church uh, found some miscellaneous set of instructions or uh, words from Paul, and they just slipped it into the Corinthian letter here, inadvertently. And uh, there's some appearance of, of um, rationale to that, because of 
verse 13, chapter 8, talks about idols. And then chapter 10, uh, Paul returns to the issue of idolatry. Well, I don't think that those are satisfactory explanations. I'm going to take the more traditional interpretation of this passage, and really all of chapter 9, and make the argument here that Paul hasn't strayed off topic for a second. What Paul is doing now in chapter 9 is he's pointing a spotlight to himself. And he said, okay, I told you in chapter 8 that you strong Christians need to learn how to moderate the use of your liberty so that you don't run around harming other Christians. In other words, Paul is saying, you need to learn how to sacrifice your rights and privileges for the benefit of others. What Paul does here now in chapter 9 is he says, look at me. He says, look at me. I'm a classic case of somebody denying their rights and privileges to themselves in order that they may be a blessing to others. You see, the Corinthians needed this rebuke. Because the Corinthian motto on how to use their Christian liberty was already stated back in chapter 6. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful. In a sense, they were correct. In a sense, anything that isn't forbidden by the Word of God, uh, anything that God doesn't specifically address, we would call adiaphora. It's a thing indifferent. If there's no law there, if there's no prohibition, what we would say is that God says it's okay for you to do it. But that's an enormously different thing than saying you should do it. Or that it's a blessing to other people if you do it. And one of the things that you have to come to grips with here in this entire section is that there are some things that are permissible and lawful for Christians to do if you want to think about it in the strictest sense of the terms, but they're not always good for Christians. Paul says, here's what I want you to get. I want you to moderate your conduct in things that are lawful things that are uh, matters of Christian liberty, I want you to moderate your use of them in a way that's similar to what I do. So that's why he brings up this issue uh, of his apostleship. This is just not a stray defense of his apostleship. It may seem like it, Because from verse 4 through verse 14, uh, Paul gives a very developed argument for why he should have certain privileges. But then if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are because it's too, too early in the sermon not to have them open. Verse 15 says this, I've used none of these things. See that? He said, I have all of these privileges and rights of an apostle. And he says, I have used none of these things. And then he goes on to say, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And then he goes on to say, I preach the gospel. I have nothing to boast of. I'm under compulsion to do it. Verse 18, he goes on to speak about his mode of operation. He says, uh, I preach the gospel. I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, what he's, he's saying here is that there's a number of privileges I forego as an apostle because I want to be a blessing to the church. 
He says, not everybody has to do it in the exact same way I do. But he says, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand, is that I do not insist upon my rights as an apostle, because I know that in some cases, if I refrain from indulging in those rights, I can be of use to other people. So that's the big picture of what's going on here. And I want us to know that we're going to spend some time walking through chapter 9. I don't want us to get lost. I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. But I do want us to be aware of what's going on in the chapter. And first of all now, as we have this broader context, let's come back to our few verses this morning and see if we can't get through them. Uh, What Paul is doing here in these verses is exalting his apostleship. He's exalting his apostleship. Now, he says in in verse 9, or rather chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Now, the the answer is implied in the way he asked the question. I am an apostle, he says. It's a functional declaration of apostleship. And what you'll notice is that the apostle very frequently does this. Paul very frequently uh, declares the fact of his apostleship and defends it. Just listen to several of these declarations of his apostleship. 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Notice the accent there. Two times on the fact that he is an apostle by divine right. God called him and God put him in there by his will. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul and apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You'll see the same uh, sort of formulation Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. Then Galatians 1, 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice there, he goes completely out of his way to make the point that it's not because any person told him he was an apostle. It's not because some church council told him he was an apostle. It's not because of a group of of, uh, elite spiritual people got together and said, you should be an apostle. He goes out of his way to say, no, I am an apostle through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior. You see, he says, God, in a sense, put a gun to my head and said, you are going to be an apostle. Now, why do all this? Uh, Clearly, if you read through the rest of the New Testament letters and you read the words of the apostles, uh, the other apostles, you don't see them doing this at all. They will barely state the fact that they're an apostle. That's it. And the reason is because in Paul's own historical uh, circumstances. Uh, you see, this calling to an apostleship had historical roots to it. You, not just anybody could claim to be an apostle. They had to have met certain qualifications that I want to go through here in a second. And, and everybody knew that Paul didn't meet those same qualifications exactly. And so, wouldn't you know it, that every time Paul would go preach in a church... There was always a group of people who'd come in right after him and say, well, maybe you shouldn't listen to everything that Paul says because we can't really be sure that he's an apostle after all. Because Paul has decided here to magnify his apostleship, because that is central to uh, his entire argument in chapter 9, let's take a minute to review what it means to be apostle and see why Paul makes such a big deal of it here as he's trying to get these Corinthians to follow his example. Now I'm going to give you five things about an apostle this morning to set up the force and the power of Paul's argument here. And the first thing about an apostle is, uh, what does it mean? It means somebody who's called to speak 
for Jesus Christ. It's somebody who's called to speak for or in the place of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes, and we need to make a distinction here, sometimes the word apostle is used in the New Testament to refer to just people who are generically sent. And that happens to be one reason why today you have people running around calling themselves apostles in the Christian church. And they're not apostles, believe me. They're not apostles. But they'll tell you they are. And they'll tell you that if you just send in a handkerchief, they'll pray over it, and you'll get an apostolic blessing back in your life. Uh, That's not apostleship, and we're going to see why. Uh, It's not enough just to work with the Greek word apostolos to see what it means to be an apostle. Uh, What stands behind this idea of apostleship is a Hebrew term and concept of the shaliach. The shaliach in the ancient world was a person who had the power of attorney. It was a person who was designated to go speak for another person or a group of persons. In other words, they had an official capacity to speak for someone. And when they did speak, it was as if the person who sent them was speaking. Jesus uses this idea. I want to connect that now to apostleship. Just listen to it. Matthew 10.40, Jesus says, He who receives you, receives me. This is what he said to the disciples when he was commissioning them. He who receives you receives me. Notice the concept tied, the concept with Shaliach tied in there. John 13.20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. Galatians 4.14, Paul says, You receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. See, Paul's even applying the idea to himself, understanding that this is the backdrop which forms the concept for understanding what an apostle was. It was somebody that Jesus sent to speak for him. The other thing we know about the apostles, secondly, is that they were, uh, they were commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. We have an example of uh, the first commissioning in Luke chapter 6. We're told that Jesus had been praying all night. He came down from the mountain. He gathered his disciples together. And he said, um, he chose out the twelve and he called them his apostles. We see Jesus confirming those calls over and again. But finally there's a last confirmation before he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1. It says, uh, until day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after suffering, giving many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now that right there is going to narrow it down to what apostle is. the very discreet a set of people. He said, were those whom he had chosen. It's obviously referring back to Luke chapter 6. Those that Jesus had put his hand on and said, I choose you to be an apostle. To these people, they had a unique a set of duties. They had a unique set of duties. They had the authority to speak as apostles in Christ's name. They would receive inspired revelation from God, communicate to that the church. Uh, they were called upon peculiarly and uniquely to raise up the church of Jesus Christ among the Jews and the Gentiles. They had uh, all kinds of ecclesiastical powers and authority that were not granted to anybody else besides these apostles. 
They had enormous powers, fourthly. They had enormous powers. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, He summoned His disciples together. It says He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then in verse 8, we're told that, again, He gave them power to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, and to cast out demons. Again, these are enormous powers. They even have the power or the ability to lay hands on other Christians and to impart to them spiritual gifts. You get a, a window into this from 2 Timothy chapter 1 where the Apostle reminds Timothy that through the laying on of his hands, he received gifts. But then one of the passages to turn to, because it's an important passage, that's directly relevant to our passage here this morning, and that's Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I, I want you to turn over there to see this for yourself, just in case you, are ever, uh, you ever have the experience of encountering someone who tells you that they are an apostle. I want you to have this text handy. Because here in Acts chapter 1, uh, the disciples are waiting in the upper room, as they have been instructed to, because they've been instructed uh, to wait in Jerusalem till they have received spiritual power from on high. Uh, they have realized that they needed to replace a Judas who apostatized and had killed himself. So they needed to replace him as an apostle. And so they gathered together here for the purpose of replacing him and voting on who would be uh, the apostle who would take his place. Now, as they did that, they said, but wait a second, there are some uh, basic qualifications you must meet in order to be an apostle. Beginning with verse 21, it says this, It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now you see here that there are real historical qualifications for being an apostle. Not just anybody can sign up. It's not as if the church here put out a, a sign-up list and said, Hey, all of y'all who are be willing to be an apostle, it's rough business, you might have some hard times, you may not have that much money, uh, you may be persecuted and afflicted. Whoever's interested in that kind of a calling, come see us at the back of the church and we'll tell you whether uh, we'll put you on the list or not. Well, no, it wasn't a volunteer ministry at all. They're told here that in order to be considered as an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus from the day of his baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River until his ascension into heaven. That means specifically that you not only had to be with him for all that time over three years, but you had to have been a witness, an eyewitness to his resurrection. Now, all of this is obviously in the backdrop. This, all this freight is behind this question here in verse 9, or rather verse 1 of chapter 9, where he says, Am I not an apostle? Uh, it's a declaration. I am an apostle. I have a unique calling. I have a unique position. I have a unique commissioning. I have a unique experience. I have a unique set of duties. I have a unique power, he says. And you know that to be true. Very important to grasp that is his argument because he brings it up to settle a case here. He says, I have all of these privileges I could be taking, uh, making use of. But I forego them to be a blessing to the church. You see, the more 
He exalts his office as an apostle. The more he points out its uniqueness, the more it heightens the sense of the fact that these privileges are to be given to him. And yet, the more that he is able to underscore that, and then say, but I deny myself these things, the more relevant and potent and forceful the example is. I hope you caught all that. I know we've had a whole lot of stuff, and if you're taking notes, your hand is probably aching right now. But you needed this as backdrop to understand the power and the force of the arguments. He's saying, you need to look at my example. I am somebody who sacrifices himself for others. And he said, you know what, Corinthians? We need a whole church full of people who are not apostles. We only have 12 of those. That's all Jesus said we needed. What we need is a whole church full of people who are willing to forego their own rights and privileges so that they can be a blessing to another Christian. So that they can so govern their lives and so moderate their affections and so moderate their actions that they're not doing things that are causing other Christians to stumble in their faith. The flip side of that, if you could turn it inside out, is to say this, we need a whole church full of Christians who are so self-disciplined that by their lifestyle, they are building other people up. He says, this is the model of what it means to be strong. Not just to stand aloof from people as if behind a glass showcase somewhere in a department store where people walk by and say, sure enough, that's what it means to look like a mature Christian. No, what he's saying is that we need real mature Christians to live in the whole body of the church and to use their maturity in such a way that they take somebody by the hand and walk them through the Christian life in a way that's a blessing to them and doesn't hurt them. You know, it's real disgusting to see this, but it happens sometimes among people who would consider themselves to be the more mature, into the deeper things of Jesus, that they're pretty aloof. Uh, They're pretty proud of themselves for their example. And, uh, you know, they would never really reach down to somebody who's a, 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 a sinner struggling in their sins and give them a hand up. No, that, that, they'll say, you, you, need to, you need to earn the right to be up here on my stage. And that's just really uh, flat out um, uh, disgusting. There should be no such thing as a Christian who thinks they're so advanced in the Christian life that they don't have time to come alongside of people who are struggling and weak in their faith and to be a blessing to them and to build them up. And uh, if we see that here, we'll just have to call people out and say, no, that's, that's not acceptable. That's not how Christians act. But the more mature people come alongside those who are weak and are a blessing and build up. The second application I want to draw out of this passage before we move on to our second point this morning is the obvious. But you need to be reinforced in this this morning. Uh, is that there are no more apostles left on earth. There are no more apostles left on earth. 
And, and the reason is obvious, because no one uh, on earth right now has been living since the first century. I'm positive of that. That's the only way anyone could have uh, the beginning of a credible claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is for them to say that the 2,000 year old man. That's it. And that would just be the beginning. Then they would have to prove to us that they had been with Jesus since his baptism in the river Jordan. And they would have to say to us that they were there throughout his whole entire public ministry. And they would have to say for us that they were there on the Mount of Olives. And they saw Jesus hop on that cloud and ascend into heaven. The only way we could ever begin to entertain uh, the truth, as, or rather their, their claim to be an apostle, is if they could meet those qualifications. And the fact of the matter, they can't. It's impossible. There is a unique, discrete set of people who are apostles. And that means then that the powers of apostles are not with us today. There are no uh, people alive today who are Christians who have the power and the ability to perform miracles. There are no people alive today who have the power to cast out demons. There are no people alive today who are Christians who have the ability to raise the dead. There are no Christians alive today who have the power to lay hands on your fair head and impart to you a spiritual gift. They just don't exist. Because the apostles were the only people who had those powers. And the apostles were these 12, 13 men commissioned directly by Jesus Christ, given certain powers, and had a unique set of experiences that cannot be duplicated. And so the next time you run into somebody, whether it's on the internet or the television, saying that they are apostles, you need to realize that they're liars. You need to realize that they're liars. And that they're deceivers. And that they're dangerous for you spiritually. And yet it's all too prevalent today. It's all too prevalent among too many Protestants to claim that they have apostolic powers, apostolic gifts, apostolic abilities. I'm not saying that nobody ever gets healed anymore. I'm saying nobody has the powers of healing. God heals. We accept that. We're not saying today that anybody's walking around with the ability to do what the Apostle Paul did when he saw uh, that lame man in Lystra who never walked a day in his life to look him right in the eye and say, get up and walk. You don't have those powers today. They're not in the church. They're not with us. They're not with us in an office of apostles. Secondly, Paul defends his uh, apostleship here. Uh, We said that he declared the fact of his apostleship. Now he defends the fact of his apostleship. He says, am I not an apostle? And then he gives us a series of proofs. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And then he says, this is my defense of those who would ask me. You see, Paul says right here, if you want to know that I'm an apostle, here's my defense right here. I don't have to say anything else. I have seen Jesus Bodily, physically, and with my eyes, I've seen Jesus. And second of all, you are the proof of my apostleship. Let's break that down for a second this morning. The first piece of evidence for his apostleship is that he has seen Jesus Christ. He has seen Jesus Christ with his own eyes. Now Paul says that um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.8, he says that Jesus... Uh, the resurrected Jesus, last of all, appeared to him. He said the resurrected Jesus, 
last of all appeared to him. And Paul places himself on a continuum with a whole list of people who had seen Christ, the resurrected Christ. He said, first of all, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to twelve. Then he appeared to five hundred. And then he appeared to the rest of the apostles. And then he appeared to James, which, by the way, was his own brother. We'll come back to this when we come to 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul isolates James, the brother of the Lord, and says that Jesus appeared to James. Now, just as an aside, why would they say that? Because his brothers had no faith in their own brother that he was really the Son of God. Can you imagine growing up in a house with one of your brothers say he was the Son of God? They didn't believe it. They did not believe it. We find evidence in the Gospels that there was a lot of sibling rivalry in Jesus' family. But uh, Paul says he appeared to James. And that changed everything. And it changed everything for Paul. He said, I have seen Jesus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. You see, what Paul does is he uses the word Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 9. And I want to give you a little insight that every time that Paul uses the word Jesus without the second title Christ, he is always referring to the historical Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, he's always referring to the fact that this God-man, Jesus, in his earthly life somehow is referring to that. Remember, that's a qualification of an apostle that they would have seen the resurrected Christ physically and bodily. And we know that Paul is thinking of his conversion experience here, and we'll see that in just a second. Uh, Paul here in Acts 26 is recounting before Agrippa the day that he met Jesus. And the day that he, was, uh, that he met Jesus, we're told in verses 10 and 11, that he was rushing off from Jerusalem to go find more Christians to punish and to kick out of the synagogues and uh, to even preside over their death. We're told here that Paul was, uh, was really violently persecuting the church. He said, being furiously enraged at them. He was going all throughout the cities of Palestine, trying to find these Christians who he thought were blasphemers and sectarians. At the middle of the day, we're told now in verse 13, he says, O king, I saw the light, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. Now what I want you to see here in verse 14 is that he includes others in the situation as eyewitnesses to the same thing he saw, yet they didn't understand it in the way that he did. It says, and when we had all fallen to the ground. You see, Paul says there were other people who were with him, and by the way, those were hostile people. People who were hostile to Christianity they were Jews, and Paul cites them as evidence that can verify his experience here. We're talking history. We're not talking about mythology. That's what I want us to be clear. We're talking about history. We're talking about facts. We're talking about evidence. He said, we all fell down. And then he relates what happened after they all fell down on their face. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see that? That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was... uh, 
furiously engaged at them, trying to persecute them and to prosecute them and hopefully even preside over their death. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? He says, why are you persecuting me? And what emerges from that way of putting things is that there is such a mysterious and profound unity between believers and Jesus Christ that to throw a punch against a believer is to throw a punch at Jesus Christ. Then he says, why are you persecuting me? He makes it personal. It's not just abstract. It's not that you just don't like my ideas or uh, abstract philosophical principles. He says, you are attacking me as a person. You're attacking me as the Son of God. You're attacking me as the God-man and the head of the church. You know what Paul said to that? Verse 15. He said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? You see, he's lying prostrate with his face down in the sand next to his donkey on the road to Damascus as he hears the terrible sound of the voice of Christ as he's interrogating him and prosecuting him he realizes something that this person that he sees enveloped in transcendent light is no ordinary person he's Jesus and he's the son of God And he is Lord. Look what Jesus said to him in verse 15. The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice the connection there. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Have I not seen Jesus? You can imagine that every time Paul had a moment of silence, that must have been ringing in his ears. I am Jesus. He can never, uh, he can never forget this historical encounter, this visible and physical encounter with Christ. He says, I have seen the resurrected Christ. And then he goes on in verse 16 to relate what happens after that. Jesus said to him, You get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also the things which I will show you. You see there, he joins together his seeing of Jesus with the commission of Jesus to be an apostle. Tying all these things together, then you can see that the Apostle Paul has a claim to apostleship that is not any a bit inferior to the rest of the apostles. He's seen him as an eyewitness. He's been given gifts. He has the duties. He has the commissioning. He is an apostle. Again, back to the broader issue of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is exalting his status as an apostle and then saying there's a lot of rights and privileges that go along with being that. But I deny some of them. Because I want to show you that it's okay to sacrifice your privileges and your rights and your freedom to be a blessing to other people. So he validates his apostleship here by this first... um, This first piece of evidence, I have seen Jesus our Lord. And by the way, that's a critical piece of evidence. If you haven't seen the resurrected Christ, you cannot testify to the resurrected Christ according to the apostles. Not the way the apostles did. Secondly, he says, are you not my work in the Lord? 
Are you not my work in the Lord? And in the latter part of verse 2, he says, You are the seal of my apostleship. You are the seal of my apostleship. What Paul is doing is saying, Your very existence as Christians and your very existence as a church is proof that I'm an apostle. The very fact that you have faith, the very fact that you are in the Lord, the very fact that you confess Christ as Savior is because I am an apostle that I have been duly appointed and commissioned by Jesus Christ to speak for Him to you. And because that happened, you heard the power of the voice of Jesus Christ calling you to faith and to repentance and to salvation and to eternal life. He says, your faith is God putting a seal, visible, public, legally acceptable proof before all men that Paul is an apostle. Those are two very powerful pieces of evidence this morning, people of God, to confirm to us that Paul was no second-rate apostle, that he was appointed by Jesus to speak for him. Just as convincing as any of the miracles that Paul ever performed is the fact, Paul says, that that church in Corinth had been raised up and these people believe in Jesus. So, we have some application this morning. We have some application this morning. Maybe you didn't get all the pieces of the puzzle put together. I know there was a lot there that I I tied together because I want us to grab the force of this statement. I'm an apostle. How critical it is to the entire argument of chapter 9 and to the broader issue of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 in Christian liberty. But we can't miss this as we walk away from our passage this morning, is that Paul exalts his apostleship and he gives us evidence and proof of his apostleship. And that means for you and I this morning that we have every reason to believe that these words here that Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 are the inspired words of God to us. We need to be assured this morning that the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians and the rest of his letters are infallible, authoritative, inspired words from God. They are not the reflections of a pious and brilliant man that should have more than ordinary weight with us. These are words from God spoken to His church. And that means that they have the authority to regulate our faith. That means that anything that is said in these inspired words has the authority to regulate what you are to believe and it has the authority to regulate how you are to act. This morning we need to embrace that point. The Bible is no ordinary book. The Bible is no ordinary book. It is the product of inspiration and God has used apostles like Paul who had a unique historical experience and that we are to receive what they say if you have come to church this morning doubting about whether you can trust your Bible believe me this happens to Christians too not just non-Christians here's proof this morning in these very terse questions of Paul am I not free am I not an apostle Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 
Are you not my work in the Lord? You are authorized this morning to have rest in your soul that the Bible is God's word and that these are inspired words because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ and what he says is to ground your faith. And we need grounding in this faith that the Bible is unique, that it is inspired, that it is God's word. Second of all, as Paul's argument here is to lift himself up as an example of somebody who has an exalted position with enormous benefits, yet he sacrifices some of those for the blessing of others. There's a couple of lessons for us here this morning within that idea. John Calvin commenting on this passage said, Assuredly, natural equity requires that whatever law is imposed by anyone upon others should be submitted to by himself. I can put that in modern English for you in case you didn't get it. It means practice what you preach. That's exactly what it means in John Sotel terms. Practice what you preach. That is for anyone. But above all, it's for people who are in positions of a leadership that you have to practice what you preach. You cannot say, I'm in such an exalted position that I am above the law. And unfortunately, that happens a little bit too much in our modern era when pastors have large churches and large followings and all of a sudden believe that they're the mouthpiece of God and now they have a higher authority than the rest of us. They have a higher position and because of that they've transcended the law now and they are above the commandments. And what happens when people believe those kinds of ideas are obvious because you've read the newspaper and watched TV yourself. Everything from adultery to embezzlement to all kinds of terrible doctrines taught in the name of Jesus Christ by people who have exalted positions, exalted a sense of self because somehow they believe that because they have a high position, they're above the law. Most doctors pick on people like that. Let's apply this to ourselves. In any position of leadership, that means you have an obligation to practice what you preach. Fathers and mothers, teachers, anybody who is in a position of authority has the obligation to practice what they preach. A second application that unfolds behind that is very close to it is this. Remember, the broader issue here is exalting his apostolic position and its privileges to say, I've sacrificed some of them for the blessing of others. Another application that flows out of that is this, that people who are in positions of leadership, again, let's think about it as practically as we possibly can, mothers, fathers, teachers, coaches, policemen, whoever, have an obligation to sacrifice some of their responsibilities in order to have a profound impact on others. I could just tell you about one particular example that has always stuck out in my mind ever since I saw it. It happened many, many years ago uh, when we were doing field exercises in the military. And you'd be out in the field for two weeks at a time and uh, some days you didn't get normal food. All you got was what they call meals ready to eat. And it's funny that they would call them meals because they didn't taste like meals. Uh, They were ready to eat, however. 
if you dared. But um, sometimes, just as a treat, uh, somehow the cooks would get us food out to the field as an incredible morale booster uh, to give us uh, something to eat that was worth eating, to strengthen us for everything that we were doing. And and the lesson was this, uh, that... uh, All of the people who had direct authority over us, all the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants, the first sergeants, the staff sergeants, all these people who were in higher positions of authority, who had every right to tell us what to do, also had the right to be first in line. You know what they would do? Is they would stand away from the chow line and they would let all the privates go forward and eat until they had all they wanted to eat. And then they would go through and get the leftovers. And I've never forgotten that. They sacrificed privileges that were, were properly theirs in order to be a blessing to us. So that when they had hard things to say to us, uh, there would be an awareness on our part that these people had sacrificed for us too. I don't know that there's a one-to-one correspondence that we can draw between you this morning and the position of leadership that you have and the kinds of sacrifices you can make, but you can reason by way of analogy. There are some things that you can give up in order to be a blessing to others and to sacrifice for others. And Paul would call upon us who are in those positions this morning to think about it, to make our leadership credible by not claiming and demanding everything that may be rightfully ours, but be willing to say in humility, I'll give this up. I'll give this up. Because I want to be an example to you. That flows out of what Paul is arguing here in 1 Corinthians 9. And then one last application here this morning. And it's kind of different than the rest. But it's bound up in what Paul says here. Are you not my work in the Lord? And then verse 2, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What Paul is saying here is that it's obvious that your faith, your believing, and your founding and being drawn together as a church, it's obvious that's not a human work. That's what he's saying. It's obvious that it's not a human work. It's a divine work. And if it's a divine work and it happened through me, Paul says, that, uh, that tells you, that certifies my claim to apostleship. But the broader point that I want us to get out of this is that building a church and calling the people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, and it actually happens, is a divine work. Yes, he uses us as his instruments and his messengers and his human means. But the fact is, what Paul is arguing here, the very existence of this church plant in Corinth is a testimony to the fact that God did it all. And that it's divine. And it's nothing we can do of ourselves. What that means for us this morning as a church plant struggling with all of our might to get off the ground, to be planted so that we can go out and plant other churches, is that we have to remember that it's God who does it all. And I forget that all the time. Because I want it to be based upon how hard we all try. And if we just try hard enough, then we can calculate when this is all going to be done. You can't do that. What I need to remember from this passage with all of us this morning here is that raising up a church is God's work. 
It's not done with gimmicks. It's not done with using the methods of the social sciences. It's not done through entertainment and feel-good music and all kinds of wonderful, fun programs that attract all kinds of people to church. A church is raised up purely, according to the Apostle Paul, by one thing, the sovereign grace of God. Period. And we we all need to be mindful of that and pray fervently for that, that God would be so pleased to raise us up. That God will be so pleased to raise us up for the purpose of exalting His name. And that's what I want to leave us with this morning. Let's all pray for that as we learn from Jesus.